This is the Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 39. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 39 of the Paul Kirtley podcast. Good to have you along. Thanks for listening. Now, if you follow my various outputs on YouTube and podcasts and on my blog, you'll know that I had a series of question and answer videos and podcasts called Ask Paul Kirtley and I would usually during a walk in the woods or out and about in the fields and the hedgerows I would stop and record a Q&A session with questions that had been asked by viewers and listeners and there were a number of ways of asking me those questions um, via posting on social media or sending me the question directly and that would be recorded as a video, it'd be put on my YouTube channel and it would be put on my blog as a video and also recorded, the audio would be taken and turned into a podcast which was put on iTunes and all the podcast platforms as well as being embedded on my blog along with the video. So there were lots of different ways of consuming that but it was an additional podcast series effectively to my main podcast series which is the Paul Kirtley podcast and this caused a little bit of confusion and it also meant that I had to maintain two sets of infrastructure in terms of podcast infrastructure, two separate feeds and streams and things. All of that back material is still there. There are 80 eight zero episodes of Ask Paul Kirtley which you can still get to um, it's still there on iTunes and Stitcher and whatnot it is also still there on my blog and all the videos are still on my YouTube and they will remain there but what I did uh, towards the end of 2018 I decided that I would stop that series as an independent series and partly the reason was that YouTube is changing and that type of content wasn't really resonating massively on YouTube. And um, I decided to stop producing the video version of Ask Paul Kirtley as a result of that. And I also thought I should rationalize what I was doing with audio feeds. So here we are. I still continue to produce the Paul Kirtley podcast and I have a bunch of interviews that are lined up for future episodes, both uh, some already recorded as well as some in the pipeline with guests having agreed to record interviews. I've got some great guests coming up, some really interesting conversations. But also I'm going to be expanding what I do on the Paul Kirtley podcast. So here today I'm going to do a question and answer session. And this is something that I'm going to do periodically as part of the Paul Kirtley podcast, part of the podcast series that you're listening to. I'm also going to introduce a number of other formats, type of shows that you will benefit from going forwards as well as producing more interviews than ever. So in reducing my efforts in other areas, um, I'm concentrating on the Paul Kirtley podcast being my premium, my premier audio platform. It's going to stay free, of course. You can listen um, in all the usual ways, but there are going to be a number of different formats of shows along with the regular interview format, which I have paved the way for the Paul Kirtley podcast within uh, the past couple of years. And so today is the first question and answer session. I have a bunch of questions lined up, and in fact, they are questions that were left over from the Ask Paul Kirtley series. Um, and that means of asking the questions is still there. So if you'd like to ask me a question, you can still go to paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash ask hyphen paul hyphen Kirtley. Uh, that's paulkirtley.co.uk ask dash paul dash curtly and you will get to a page where you can ask me a question so i haven't changed the way that you can ask me questions um, you can still use the hashtag ask paul curtly on twitter on instagram you can still leave me a voice message and i think a voice message is the best way that you can do this um, you can just go to that page that i mentioned i'll also link it in the show notes and you can record a voice message for me which will then be featured on the show if the uh, 
question is selected to be answered in a future Q&A session. Um, so the way of getting the questions to me is the same. It's just where they will be answered is a bit different. They will be answered on the Paul Kirtley podcast periodically on a Q&A show. And I will be answering questions that have not been asked before. Um, unfortunately, one of the other problems with the Ask Paul Kirtley was that I was starting to get the same questions over and over again. And the whole reason for me starting that series was because I was being asked questions by email and individually by direct message. And I was answering those questions as much as I could, but only one or two people were benefiting from that. And the reason I started producing them as a video and a podcast was so that more people could benefit from them. So please do search the back catalogue of Ask Paul Kirtley before you uh, ask me a question because your question may well have already been answered and so rather than you having to wait for me to get around to answering you the answer may well be waiting there ready for you that was uh, a large part of the motivation for creating that series and as I say there are 80 episodes there and there are between three and six questions answered per episode so there's a couple of hundred questions there with answers to them um, which are very common questions that I'm asked so your question may well have already been answered um, but if you'd like to ask another question or ask uh, more details of particular areas then you can continue to do so via the periodic Q&A on this. So I hope that's clear. I know that's quite a long introduction, but I wanted to explain the background because some uh, podcast listeners don't necessarily listen or haven't listened to the Ask Paul Kirtleys. I know some of you have, but I just wanted to make sure everyone's on the same page as to where this is coming from, how you can continue to ask me questions and where they're going to be answered. It will be here on these podcast Q&A shows. So without further ado, here is the first question. Hello, Paul. It's Adrian Spring with a question for the Paul Kirtley podcast. Uh, my question for you today, Paul, is this. Is there an issue with collecting water that has toxic plants growing within, within it, such as water iris, hemlock water dropwort, um, and any other toxic species? Um, any help you can give me would be much appreciated. Thank you for all your hard work. Hi, Adrian. Good to hear from you again. And, and another good question. Um, I'm sure that will be of interest to many listeners. I know for sure that sourcing and purifying water is a concern to many outdoors people, particularly those who are venturing out for the first time or maybe venturing into wilder places or venturing into getting more resources from the land than they were before, including getting more of their water from wild sources. And so this is a very valid question. Um, there are a number of species, and you mentioned a couple of the important ones, there are a number of species which are either aquatic or will grow in very damp, moist ground that have some serious poisoning potential. Um, hemlock water dropwort is one that you mentioned, and that is a member of the Apiaceae, the carrot family. Um, the Latin name for it, the scientific name is Oenantha crocata, and that is one of the most poisonous plants in Britain and Western Europe, and it likes to grow in damp ground on the edges of streams, in muddy ground, around the edges of ponds, and I can think of lots of places where you could easily source water Water from where that plant grows. Iris, uh, particularly yellow flag iris, but also the other irises, um, iris pseudocorus, that's yellow flag or yellow iris, that is one that will grow on the edges of ponds, often next to uh, cattails, Tifa latifolia. And so this is something that is going to be in and around places where you might be collecting water as well. And so I guess the concern is there is some sort of cross-contamination or pollution of the water source from the presence of these toxic species in and around the sources of water that you might be using. Um, the short answer to the question is no, there's nothing really to worry about if the plants are just growing in the water because the compounds that are going to cause poisoning are contained within the plant and are there to protect the plant. Um, they're not sort of giving them off into the water where there may be an issue however if those plants have been trampled and there are a number of cases that I know of where cattle for example so cows on farms have gone down to streams or ditches where these plants are growing and specifically hemlock water dropwort I'm thinking of now and they've trampled uh, the ground sufficiently and churned it up that they have also mashed up some of the tuberous roots where the poisonous compound 
compounds are most concentrated and that has then found its way locally very locally into the water there that which the cows have been drinking and that has caused uh, poisoning of the cattle um, but that is a very particular case um, and so the main thing that you would need to be concerned with I guess is if you were not so much taking water from a pond where hemlock water dropwort might be growing on the margins of but if you were uh, getting water from a more marginal source where it was boggy ground and you may say have dug a, uh, a well uh, what's sometimes referred to as a gypsy well no offense intended to the traveling community um, there that's just one of the names that that type of well is called so you're digging a hole into damp ground to allow water to seep into it now of course if there were hemlock water dropwort tubers present there there might be uh, potential for you mashing enough of the tubers into that well in digging it out to potentially cause some issues so it's just a case of awareness of whether or not there are some tuberous parsnip like roots immediately in the vicinity that you're digging if you know the plant and know how to recognize it the leaves look like uh, somewhere around flat leaf parsley or coriander and the little and the roots are like small parsnips um, that is something to be aware of but I don't know of any cases of human poisoning through that uh, mechanism all the cases of human poisoning i know from hemlock water dropwort are down to direct ingestion of the tuberous roots due to misidentification normally due to people thinking that they have a wild parsnip or a wild carrot sometimes through people um, finding the underground storage organs in winter next to plants such as tifa latifolia and pulling out the wrong underground storage organ and not having a, a good knowledge of what those underground storage organs should look like thinking they've got the rhizomes of tifolatifolia or tifolatifolia and then consuming the underground storage organs the tuberous roots of oenanthe crocata and there are a couple of cases um, of that that i have heard of but the main issue is people thinking that they have one plant that is in the carrot family and it being another plant in the carrot family um, i've not heard of any issues of people even digging uh, for water and causing themselves problems but there is the potential there and that's one that you should be aware of so basically what i'm saying is be aware of mashing the plants in the direct vicinity of where you are collecting the water so if you're having to get into muddy ditches if you're having to wade into a pond to get access to the water or even just walk down into muddy water right next to where you're collecting it if those plants are growing there's potential the other thing you need to be aware of of course with hemlock water dropwort in particular but also iris um, is that they can cause a contact dermatitis um, irises uh, the sap can cause irritation um, Oenanthe crocata, hemlock water dropwort particularly, um, causes a photosensitization um, in a similar way to giant hogweed and giant hogweed, uh, Heraclium manticazianum. That is uh, becoming increasingly well known as a problem around waterways again, particularly for children playing in those places where they get in contact with the sap. That is then exacerbated by exposure to ultraviolet light. Um, this often happens on sunny summer days and then there is blistering. Effectively, it, it causes a, a rapid sunburn of the area that is in contact with the sap. Um, hemlock water dropwort has a similar compound in the plant so if you are brushing past the plant and damaging it to get to your water source um, then there is potential again for you to have some uh, contact photosensitization due to coming into contact with that plant so that's another thing to be aware of um, while you're sourcing your water in terms of the toxicity of those plants in particular um, i hope that answers the question generally there's nothing to worry about if there is a pond and there is some iris or hemlock water dropwork growing somewhere on the other side of the pond there is nothing to worry about even if it's growing really quite close to where you're collecting the water there is nothing to worry about as long as you haven't mashed up the underground storage organs of that plant um, into the water source where you're collecting it directly from so i hope that helps and i hope it also helps you understand those plants a little bit better those of you that are not familiar with them thanks for the question adrian cheers Okay, let's uh, listen to the next question. Hi, Paul. This is Jeremy from Somerset. Thank you for all your informative podcasts, which 
share a lot of your knowledge with the community. I had a question that occurred to me that I would like to pose to you. Um, and it's about the benefits as well as the disadvantages to a woodland if it's been used for bushcraft. Um, for example, does not the removal of all dead wood for burning and so on not uh, ruin the biodiversity of the uh, woodland? Um, interested to know how you would sell the idea to a landowner that letting us use his land or their land, sorry, uh, be good for the management of the wood and the overall health of it. So uh, that's my question to you and I look forward to hearing back from you. Thank you. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for your question. It's a good one. And I think that actually there are a number of questions there rolled into one. And there's two main questions that can be answered separately, but I think you're right to link them, at least in your question and the way that you phrased your question. So the first one is whether or not bushcraft activities can be beneficial or detrimental to woodland. And the second one to my ears is how then can you use those facts to help sell to a landowner the possibility of bushcraft activities on their land? Um, first off, I think we need to define what we mean by bushcraft activities. And there are two separate ways of thinking about this, I think, in, in two separate categories, really. One is... Is it just going to be you and or a couple of friends entering the woodland occasionally from time to time to camp, to undertake some bushcraft activities, to practice skills, um, maybe a few weekends a year, maybe a week here, here or there? That's one category, really, which is very light to use. And then you've got another category, which is are there going to be uh, groups, uh, larger groups, uh, groups more often? Are you going to be running courses? Are you going to be running multiple courses? Are you going to be running courses through the year? So that latter category, obviously, if there's more people accessing the woods more often, there is going to be more of an effect on the woods potentially. And so we need to define exactly what we mean, even in terms of uh, numbers of people and frequency of access before we even dive into particular skills and techniques. Um, personally, uh, running a bushcraft school, uh, we run courses on sites where we have access to large areas of land where we are not going to be exhausting any given resource in an area and I would be looking for a larger area of woodland for those type of activities than maybe if I was just going into the woods on my own with a friend occasionally, a couple of friends just to practice skills on a personal level because I know if I've got 12 students on a course plus three instructors which we typically have on our courses and we are accessing uh, resources the same resources on a regular basis we need to have quite a large area so that we don't just deplete a particular resource in one small area so we can rotate around different areas and allow um, all of the species there to continue to thrive despite us taking some of the resources so that's that's one thing also, um, we teach courses in a way that is as harmonious as possible. So if, for example, we have a choice of multiple different species, whether it's for cordage or for uh, friction firelighting, for example, um, whatever the skill that you think of is, um, we're going to try and use resources where they are in an abundance and leave alone or use in a very restricted way resources that are in smaller quantities in that particular area that we're operating in and so in that way we're very sensitive to what there is and how much of it we should be using it and also the other thing as you build experience you get to know how quickly certain things recover um, so there are areas where we cannot use all the resources that are there in time before they become something else and for example I'm thinking of an area of 
just an example, um, coppiced sweet chestnut that had been coppiced and then it was populated with uh, birch saplings. Uh, that is very typical. Birch is a pioneer species or birches in general are pioneer species and silver birch here in particular that I'm thinking of took over this whole area and we started using that area after a couple of years um, for tent pegs, pot hangers, just cutting some of the green birch saplings and we're not talking about a large area, it was maybe about an acre of land and we could not use all the birches for those uses before the birches got bigger and what's going to happen at some point is that the guys who manage the woodland and um, the people who are coppicing there are going to have to go in and cut a lot of those birch trees down because they're crowding out the sweet chestnut coppice that's there so in that way we were trying to use up the resources that were going to be felled anyway but we couldn't even do it even though we focused almost entirely our push for resources of a particular type for particular jobs in that area, in that small area, we couldn't use, um, we just couldn't use it. We couldn't get enough to make an impact at all. And so that's quite interesting in and of itself. Um, so understanding which resources are going to be very resilient, which ones are going to grow faster than you can use them is also useful whereas other resources are going to be slow growing and they're going to be affected. It's similar with cattails. If you get a pond starting to be taken over by cattails, if you get some groups in there occasionally harvesting the rhizomes, taking the plants out to eat the edible roots, to use the leaves for making matting and other uh, weaving and things, it's very difficult to make a significant impact on a big population of, of tifa. And the landowner might not want it in their pond. Like I know, for example, one of the places that we use the landowner wants the cattail out of the pond because it's clogging the pond up and that's what Tifa tends to do um, but I've convinced them to leave it in the pond so that we can use it otherwise there'd be none so actually in terms of the ecology of the place we're actually stopping the landowner from just stripping whole species out of particular areas because they don't want it there because they're useful to us and that's something that I've found quite a lot actually working with large landowners is that they don't look at the management of the land on a very micro level they look at it on a very macro level and they look at whole blocks of woodland they don't consider the uh, the the ground flora at all they're just looking at the trees that are in there they're looking at the yield in terms of forestry and it's actually beneficial for us going in because we we pay a certain amount to use the land and we have very little impact on it compared to, say, modern forestry. Um, I work on some bigger states where there is some modern forestry going on, where they're using harvesters and forwarders and very mechanised means of taking out plantations in particular that are quite mature and quite nice to be in. Um, they've been thinned out over the years. But when they go in with these machines, they churn the, the whole place up and there's brash left everywhere, there's oil, they damage all, they churn up lots of resources that we use. I've had areas where there's been um, lots of plants, spring plants that we have made use of on courses and then the area's been, been accessed and utilised by the forestry and it's completely ruined the area for us in terms of a lot of the micro resources that we use that were thriving there before and it takes a number of years for it to recover. So my personal experience of working in woodlands, particularly in the UK that are managed in the way that um, a lot of woodland is managed now, a lot of forest is managed, um, we have such little effect even running lots of courses um, you know we are mindful of not over utilizing certain things partly because we want them to be there for us and students in going forwards as well as to not to damage the environment we have such a small effect compared to the other activities which go on you know whether it's areas being cleared for duck shooting whether it's areas being felled for forestry even some of the coppicing i've seen in recent years has not been done in a small scale like it was done in the past it's been done on a lot larger scale in a lot more mechanized way using machinery rather than just men and chainsaws and um, it makes a lot more mess and it, it just removes whole ecosystems, blocks of woodland. We don't do anything like that. 
you know on my on my um, woodcraft of course we do fell some trees we fell some coppice sweet chestnut typically we might take eight trees down not even eight trees it's eight bowls off uh, coppice stands that are going to be coppiced anyway I mean that is nothing it's absolutely nothing and yet on my social media I get people if I post any photographs of that I get people questioning whether or not I'm damaging the environment whether or not I'm you know uh, what I'm doing is sustainable well in the context of the places that I'm working it has such a small effect it's a drop in the ocean that I'm completely satisfied that what I'm doing is not uh, to the detriment of the land and actually some of the resources that we ask to be left alone because we are teaching bushcraft skills and we need them to teach the bushcraft and um, we're actually preserving areas that would otherwise be more intensively managed because the yield that they get from us in terms of revenue versus the inputs that they need to create revenue from themselves it's a much better equation for them because we just basically pay to be there they don't have to do anything whereas if they're starting to take resources off the land themselves they've got to pay people to go and do it and the yield isn't particularly high and and so actually for a landowner having some uh, people in there teaching bushcraft and using the resources in a sensitive way can actually be really beneficial to them on an economic basis and that's normally what um, a lot of landowners are interested in not because they're necessarily that mercenary but, but there are costs involved in in maintaining land uh, there are costs involved in just fences and uh, maintaining footpaths and all sorts of things that you know are obligations of landowners and things that they want to do to maintain the land the money has to come from somewhere and a lot of landowners are rich on paper you know the land is worth quite a lot but it doesn't generate a lot of revenue so if you can go to a landowner and say actually we're going to have very little effect we're not going to degrade what you've got and in fact we may improve it and I'll, I'll come on to improving in a second and also I'm going to increase your revenue um, and it's, it requires very little input on your part that's often an attractive uh, proposition to landowners and so it, in some ways you have to be a little bit commercial about it because they are viewing the land as a commercial asset. Now not all landowners view land as commercial assets and of course there are some ancient woodlands and some very sensitive habitats and some very unique habitats that I wouldn't want to be operating on in terms of teaching general bushcraft skills you know if there are sites of special scientific interest with rare plants on them you know rare ground nesting birds etc that we don't want to be disturbing then I wouldn't want to be running courses there so that's you know there's an ethic around it uh, regardless of whether or not the landowner would like you to be there but you know in terms of teaching general bushcraft skills that rely on commonly available resources and in the UK you know we're talking you know for example things like hazel and willow and birch and alder and ash and you know the commonly occurring species which actually grow quite quickly as well then I don't think there's any issues with it and some people would argue that you know we shouldn't be in the woods at all and we shouldn't be touching anything but unfortunately that is a somewhat ignorant position firstly because we are part of the landscape um, we are an animal um, we have grown up alongside nature and nature has grown up alongside us other animals interact with the trees and the plants as well if you think about all the deer species they eat leaves they eat the ground plants they eat leaves off, off the trees and um, plants are used to being um, nibbled and bits taken off them um, that's for starters secondly a lot of our woodland has a history of management there's virtually no woodland in the UK that is entirely natural and a lot of it has been managed for a long time whether that's been for coppicing or whether it's been utilized for firewood I think it's actually very difficult unless you're using a very small piece of woodland like a, a, a just only a few acres um, to uh, to rid it of all potential firewood particularly if you're not having ridiculously large fires if you're teaching people to be responsible with their fire lighting and their fire management they will use less firewood than they would use otherwise and so you know I've been using particular sites um, for frontier bushcraft for eight or nine years and even relatively close to where our main base camps have been for years there is still an abundance of firewood so we are not affecting uh, the the you know the dead standing wood at all really in any significant effect and again I, I've seen what happens when we're not there which is more wide-scale modern forestry techniques and what tends to happen is 
all of the commercial timber, uh, the, the timber that is seen as commercial gets removed from an area, all of that dead standing just gets burned off. Um, brash and dead standing stuff just gets put in a big pile, they set fire to it and they burn it off. That could last us for years as firewood. So in the context of the way that a lot of forestry uh, in woodland is managed, we have less of an impact with the firewood and the dead standing as well than what it might otherwise be used for. Um, but equally, as I say, if it's a very sensitive piece of woodland, um, then I wouldn't want to be operating in there. But if it's just very common occurring species, then I think that's a good place to teach. And species such as, uh, as willow and hazel actually benefit from being coppiced. Uh, sweet chestnut is uh, present as a non-native species and is a very good coppice species. And if you tap into that rural economy that's already there, where the species have been harvested as, as a renewable resource, then you are tapping into a, you know, a tradition that is uh, worthwhile in maintaining. Um, because otherwise, if we're not using it and the land can't produce an income then sometimes it's at risk of either being sold off in small parcels um, some of those small parcels ended up end up being sold for housing um, it's not managed in a coherent way so if you can help a landowner generate some income and use it in a very sustainable way then I think that is in the long term one of the best things you can do for that environment. So for all of those reasons, I would argue there's a good strong case for you uh, if you're of a sensitive mind to not overutilize particular resources. You can go in and teach bushcraft skills within uh, a relatively natural environment without damaging it. Um, and also by comparison to other things it might be used for, you can damage it a lot less than other, you know, even rural pursuits like some of the some of the shooting practices which go on. And I'm not averse to all shooting, um, but I've seen some land management that goes on where whole areas of woodland are cut back to make the shooting easier, for example. That's not good for the environment as a whole. Um, not to mention, you know, lead being fired into the into the environment. Um, so not to get into an argument with the shooting fraternity, uh, not at all. But the point is, you've got to look at it in context. And I think one of the things that you see with criticism of bushcraft is that you see somebody posting a photograph or a video on Instagram or YouTube or Facebook, and then you get somebody who's a relatively urban person saying, you shouldn't be touching that tree, you're cutting green hazel, you're stripping bark off a green piece of sweet chestnut that would be coppiced eventually. And they think that somehow that that would just be left to grow wild otherwise. But there are plenty of other things going on in the countryside which have more of an effect on uh, the environment than anything a few bushcraft enthusiasts will do. So I, I think it's, it, it, it's looking at these things out of context which allows people to criticise them overly. Of course, there's a wider philosophical point that some conservationists don't like people in the environment. They think the best way to preserve an environment is for people not to be in there at all. And that might be the case in, again, if you go into very sensitive environments where you don't want footfall, you don't want any wear and tear on that particular very sensitive, unique and small last bastion of a particular type of habitat that contains very rare plants uh, or, or birds or butterflies or what have you. I completely understand that and I would, I would um, argue the case for keeping people out of that. But as a general point, if you argue that everyone in society should stay out of nature because that preserves nature, then nobody in society over a generation or two is going to um, hold nature, natural places in any sort of esteem at all because they have no value to them. They're not allowed to enjoy them. They're not allowed to access them. They're not allowed to interact with them. And it's just a cost on society that somehow doesn't repay. And I, I, I would argue strongly against um, any conservationist who thinks that people shouldn't be allowed generally to access wild places for the benefit of wild places because ultimately people only value uh, what they interact with and what they know and if you don't allow people to interact with the environment and know the environment then unfortunately over time people won't value it at all. I mean, we see that now. You see plenty of urbanised people who have no interaction with nature, who don't care at all. 
that there's whole swathes of the planet being deforested because it benefits them. It's, you know, it's cheaper products in the shop. It's cheaper fuel. It's cheaper palm oil. It's it, whatever. And I think even at a ground swell level, at a micro level, you have to let people have some interaction with nature. Otherwise, they don't um, they don't value it. And a very, very simple example I can give you is that if I have people on a one-day course and I start showing them some edible plants, for example, that are on the forest floor, all of a sudden they stop seeing it as a bunch of green stuff on the ground that they're quite happy to walk on. I mean, most people are trained to walk on green stuff that's on the ground. And when, at, at school, we run around on the football pitch or the rugby pitch or what have you. Um, grass, lawns, we walk on. Um, and lawns don't just contain grass, of course. There are other plants in there. There's plantains and sorrels and things as well. But we're, we're kind of educated from a young age that green stuff we can walk on. And I see it, particularly with urban people coming into the countryside, walking all over edible medicinal plants in the forest until you show them what they are and teach them the value of those things and say, have a taste of this, put this in, a t you know, infuse this for five minutes to make a tasty tea. This this herb can be crushed up and put on a, on a cut and it helps uh, wound healing. This herb can be used to relieve uh, bites and stings people then start seeing these things as massively valuable and they don't treat them in the same way even after a day or two of instruction they they value them they they're careful not to walk on them they're careful not to damage them in a way that they just didn't even consider beforehand and you know that's a small example of kind of why i think bushcraft's really important to get people engaged with nature and they will value it more contrary to what some of the conservationists would say that keeping those people away makes nature safer and uh, better preserved i actually think having people on a on an individual basis valuing what's there is the best way to do it and i think teaching bushcraft is a good way of doing it so i think ethically there's no issue with um, having people access woodland and learn bushcraft as long as you are not in such a small piece of woodland that you're rapidly degrading it. And secondly, I think there's some great benefits to landowners because it's a relatively low input way of generating some income in a very low impact way from the land that they have anyway that they're probably looking to get some ge generate some income from. So quite a long answer. Um, a few thoughts uh, kind of interweaved there but hopefully they tie together in a relatively coherent way at the end and there are lots and lots of strands to those arguments and you know I've tried to head a few criticisms off at the pass as well as give you some of my personal experience with how that works of running bushcraft courses in places over periods of time and seeing the effect over years um, or the lack of effect over years and uh, also comparing it to other activities and management practices which go on up and down the country that you can compare it to you can't just see somebody cutting a piece of hazel in a coppice as damage when it's out of context from the tradition of using that as a resource as a renewable resource it's out of context uh, with uh, comparing it to other activities that might go on and other management practices that might go on and other alternative uses for that land that might go on and also it's out of context with looking at how that might actually benefit the uh, the longevity of that parcel of land being maintained as a parcel of land by you contributing to the local economy and by bringing people in there not to mention the benefit it has to nature as a whole by teaching people about nature and why it's valuable to have these resources in the long term so hopefully that gives you some good ideas and good thoughts and inputs jeremy thanks for the question it's an important subject thank you for asking it some good thoughts there and uh, i hope that's helpful cheers let's have a listen to the next question Hi, Paul. This is Jim from New York. First, let me say thank you so much for your podcast and for Ask Paul Curtly. They are both highly entertaining, extremely informative, and I think they're an asset and very valuable to the bushcraft community. My question is about knives, and you get a lot of questions about knives, but this isn't really about a knife as more as number of knives. My question is, how many knives is too many knives to carry? I see a lot of guys uh, in the bushcraft community carrying two, three, four knives, plus an axe, plus a saw. Me personally, I think a belt knife and a small uh, Swiss Army knife or pocket knife is generally all that's needed, but I was curious to see your take on this and how many knives you generally carry with you on an expedition. 
not necessarily on a day hike, but on a longer extended trip. Thank you for everything you do, and thank you again for answering my question. Cheers. Hey, Jim, thanks for your question. And I would tend to agree with you. So my short answer is pretty much that I agree with you that a belt knife plus a smaller pocket knife folding locking blade or a Swiss Army knife is more than adequate. Um, I don't see the rationale for carrying multiple different bushcraft knives. And if you are in a an environment where, say, you might need a larger cutting tool, such as a parang or machete, then that in some ways replaces your normal bushcraft knife as your main tool. And then you still might carry a, a smaller knife, whether it's a companion knife directly on the sheath of that larger tool or a, a, another pocket knife, for example. So um, that is, as a general answer, what I think is sensible. What I would say as well is that whatever trip you're undertaking, specify all of your equipment based on likelihoods and realistic likelihoods. So some people might argue, well, I carry a spare knife in case I break or lose uh, one of my knives. And I can see the rationale there uh, logically, but also statistically, how likely is that? Is it likely that you're going to lose your belt knife? How many times have you ever lost a belt knife? How many times have you mislaid it? How many times has it fallen off your belt? And I would suspect the answer to that question for most people is none. As long as your belt knife doesn't come out of the sheath very easily. So, for example, say you're on a canoe trip and you've got your belt knife on your on your on your belt all the time and you fall out of your canoe and you tumbled around in the rapids and you get out of the water. You want your knife still to be on your belt. The sheath, if it's got a decent continuous belt loop on it, it's not going to come off your belt. The danger, of course, is that the knife falls out of the sheath. So you make sure that your sheath is well fitting before you go on your trip and if it isn't i would argue that you maybe need to have the uh, the sheath mended um some stitching redone some extra stitching done for example if we're talking about a leather sheath or if it's a, a plastic sheath or a kydex sheath or something that if it's not clipping into place and staying then that maybe needs replacing or again uh, some work being done to it because that's something that you want to be able to be sure of that your belt knife stays on your belt. So I don't think the possibility of it falling out is a reason to carry a spare one. It's just extra weight. Uh, the biggest problem that most people have on trips is taking too much gear. And I'm always looking to cut back on what I can take. If the argument is, oh, well, my knife might break, you know, if I'm batoning with this particular type of knife, then maybe you need a more robust knife for that particular trip. So you take one slightly more robust knife rather than two less robust knives. That is another way of uh, reducing weight and weight is normally critical. Make sure that your pocket knife can be used as a backup to your belt knife as well. Um, I've never lost a belt knife on a, on a trip, uh, short or long, near or far, um, close to home or remote. And um, so, I, you know, I think the chances of me doing so in the future, not necessarily non-zero, but they're very low because I'm careful and I know my uh, practices make sure that I, I check that I've got my knife. I'm not going to lose it. I don't have different ways of carrying it on different days. I tend to have a system and I check that I haven't lost things regularly as you should do. But if I did, say, lose a belt knife, I've got a pocket knife with me generally that can also be used for a lot of the things, maybe not as easily maybe not as effectively but i can use it for a lot of the things that i would use my belt knife for um certainly some of the smaller scale things and it can also be used um generally for smaller scale things in and around camp for example so yeah having a robust belt knife and a you know laplander or a silky or something on your belt and then having a swiss army knife with a locking blade and a saw blade as well as a backup is more than enough in pretty much any circumstances that i can think of and carrying more than that in terms of just replication of the same tool doesn't make any sense to me then of course you might want you know personally or within a group you know an axe um you know on a summer trip in the boreal forest we might have one or two axes 
in a group, you know, for firewood splitting around camp, clearing portage trails, etc. if necessary, making camp sites safe with overhanging trees that might, might be there, that type of thing. But generally, it doesn't get used very much. On a winter trip, where we're using a lot more firewood for a hot tent or whatnot, we might have more axes in the group. But again, it's a specification of what's required for the trip and so I would always come back to that is just realistically specify your equipment you don't take two canoes just in case you take one and you look after it and I would say it's the same with your knife you don't take two sets of snowshoes just in case you take one set you look after them and maybe you've got some spare lacing to repair them if necessary maybe you've got some spare lamp wick or some spare buckles for the straps or what have you you know same with your canoeing you've got a repair kit you know in case a seat breaks um, something needs fixing so you might have some wire some zip tie some glue some tape etc but you don't take a spare canoe and I would argue it's the same with all your cutting tools specify the tool that you need for the trip specify the combination of tools that you need for the trip don't overly replicate things look after them make sure they're in good condition before you go make sure the sheath is in good condition make sure the stitching's in good condition um, make sure everything's good make sure you've got what you need to sharpen it and maintain it on the trail and then you don't need to overly replicate you don't need to carry two three four belt knives because you're just putting extra weight on your back. Now, of course, that's different to going to the local woods with four different knives to test them out to see which one you want to take on your longer trip. That's a different proposition altogether. But that notwithstanding, I would say specify the tools that you need for the job and just take those. Cheers for the question. Let's have another question. Dear Paul, a couple of months ago, I purchased a spoon knife by Mora. Um, by now it is time to sharpen a knife and I must say it's quite difficult to keep a consistent angle when sharpening this knife. Do you have any tips or advice? Thank you very much, Mike. Hi Mike, thanks for the question. This is one that I'm asked a fair amount so it's good to be able to answer this. Um, I haven't got a video myself to refer you to, but I've got a couple of good videos that I will refer you to shortly. But in principle, um, what you're doing is no different to sharpening your bushcraft knife that has a flat bevel. It just happens to be bent around a curve, as it were. The bevel itself is a very similar profile to the bevel on your knife. Um, spoon knives have the bevels on the outside and the inside tends to be quite flat and so we really just need a way of attacking and sharpening both of those sides and also stropping both of those sides and there's a couple of ways of doing it um, you can use particularly shaped uh, water stones but they are quite fiddly to use you can get conical stones you can get slip stones with rounded edges which you can use um, but there are even cheaper ways of doing it if you just use pieces of wood and some wet and dry paper um, with the with the wet and dry paper stuck onto um, like a little paddle that's similar size to a ruler that you might use at school and um, with more a bit thicker with some rounded edges or you can use a doweling piece so like a round piece of wood um, for working the inside and a flat piece of wood for working the outside each with some wet and dry paper attached and then you can use them um, to sharpen the respective inside and outside uh, edges. Um, what you can also do is also use a paddle strop to, to strop and these are all relatively inexpensive to create um, if you want to create them yourself and uh, not too difficult you just need some wood a bit of um, wet and dry paper and some glue and there's a really good video online uh, made by uh, Ben Orford it's in two parts on how to sharpen a spoon knife and that's one that I refer people to quite often um, I use Ben Orford spoon knives amount as well I've got no connection with Ben I, I know him but uh, you know there's no kind of sponsorship going on here or anything I just happen to like his tools and um, I also use Svante Jav uh, spoon knives uh, Swedish uh, blacksmith and uh, they're good as well and any spoon knife where you've got a curved piece of metal you've got a flat bevel on one side and nothing really on the other side um, in terms of beveling you can use in the same way as this even the double 
edged one so I know some of the Mora knives have a bevel on the top and the bottom of the curve you can do the same thing with these as well and no issues whatsoever so um, I will link to those videos in the show notes so you just need to go to paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 39 that's paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 39 which will take you to the page with this podcast embedded along with all the links for this show you can get those links there and go straight to those videos and ben does a great job of demonstrating clearly the stages of sharpening a spoon knife and that process works very well and i would recommend you follow it so short answer but that's what i would do Thank you for the question, Mike. Good luck with your sharpening. And I think we have time for one more question, perhaps. Let's have a listen. Hello, Paul. How do you identify whether a birch tree, in Europe at least, is silver birch or downy birch? And when you can't find any birch, what's your preferred natural tinder for catching the spark from a ferro rod? Thank you for everything. Goodbye. That question came from Theo Marks, and Theo was on one of my elementary courses recently, and so I suspect he knows the answer to his question now, uh, certainly in terms of alternatives that will catch a spark. In terms of telling the difference between uh, downy birch and silver birch, uh, betula pubescens that's downy birch and silver birch betula pendula and um, there's a number of things we can look for um, downy birch has got more hairy twigs uh, if we're looking at it without the leaves the leaves tend to be more rounded certainly more chordate so more heart shaped um, the toothing tends to be regular and single toothed um, the bark does not tend to break up into the corky black mass at the base that you get on silver birches silver birches betula pendula by contrast you get that corky black uh, bark cracking at the base um, when they're younger the bark tends to not be as red um, where on the main trunks of course the, the small twigs are still a reddy burgundy color the leaves themselves are more triangular the longer two edges are double toothed so you've got a larger toothing and within that you've got uh, smaller toothing and the the leaves are generally more angular in their appearance the twigs tend to be either hairless or almost hairless um, the thing is though you do get some uh, hybridization sometimes between them um, this being said you don't need to consider them uh, separately you, you don't need to go oh well I must only find silver birch for fire lighting I can't use downy birch the bark will work just in the same way as other birches whether it's paper birch Himalayan birch or a lot of the other birch species look very very similar they all have betulin in the barks they all act as a really good natural fire lighter so don't get too hung up on differentiating between these very similar species because they will all work for fire lighting and i have indeed uh, shared a few videos in the past about uh, optimizing the bark in terms of catching sparks and i can and also creating big sparks with your ferro rod and i can share those in the show notes again if you just go to paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 39 podcast 39 you will find the links to everything that i've talked about um how to ask a question ben orford's spoon knife sharpening videos as well as those videos from me on birch bark and creating big sparks with your ferro rod in terms of what else will catch sparks from a ferro rod there's lots of things there's lots of things but we can maybe think about two broad categories if you want to sort of build a framework one is something that's going to catch and hold a spark in the strictest sense sense that is a tinder so something that will catch a smart a spark can't say spark for some reason something that will catch a spark and will then smolder but won't burst into flames um, that in the true sense of the word is a tinder and then of course we we need to take that smoldering ember to flame using uh, a bird's nest 
style tinder bundle or something else in the same way that you might take a piece of char cloth to flame and char cloth is something that would catch a spark from a ferro rod or taking a bow drill ember or a hand drill ember or what have you to flame so that you've got that whole spectrum of taking ember to flame lots of different materials that will do that but of course you need something to catch the spark um, I've mentioned char cloth but of course that needs to be prepared and taken with you you might be thinking what else can I carry um, or what else can I find well in terms of finding materials in nature um, there's a few fungi that are really worth looking for uh, Daldinia concentrica which is King Alfred's cakes um, or cramp balls as they're known black fungal growths that typically grow on ash common ash fraxinus excelsior there are some other related species which work well that you can even find in australia for example these black um polystyrene like balls that grow on dead or dying species um they broken open if they're dry will catch and hold a spark and they will glow like a little piece of charcoal and then you can take those to flame using a tinder bundle or what have you also, you've got horse's hoof fungus, Fomus fomentarius, um, tends to have a more northerly distribution, does grow typically on birches uh, the further north you go, although not exclusively. I've seen it growing on aspen. You can see it growing on beech and oak sometimes as well, although I've seen it most growing on birches in both uh, northwestern Eurasia as well as North America. And of course, then if you've got um, birch, you've got uh, birch bark, and therefore the question is a little bit academic but it is another good uh, catcher of sparks now with a flint and steel or a piece of fool's gold and a piece of flint you're going to need to process the fomus fomentarius um, to more readily accept the spark with a ferro rod however you can just take a slice of the trammer layer rough it up maybe a little bit drop a spark onto it and it will catch and hold because your ferro rod sparks are of course a lot hotter and larger than some of those other sparks more traditional sparking devices I've written an article on that as well and I will link to that in the in the show notes and you can have a look at that so that's another one um, Chaga is another one still so the the warty growth that's again it's birch but the warty growth that is caused by Inonitus obliquus growing in the birch changes the nature of the wood that is again another good source of tinder that will catch and hold a spark so they're, they're good ones and then the other so you've got these fungi that will catch and hold sparks and then other things to think about are fluffy downy materials so downy seed heads of things like tifa latifolia and tifa angustifolia and the other tifa species so the cattails or cumbungi species that will catch a spark and they will if teased out enough they will burst into flames like cotton wool but they burn through very quickly so you need Need something else that will take that flame on into an established fire and one of the things I find works very well is bracken so if you've got dry bracken fronds bracken fern sometimes referred to as eagle fern or eastern bracken fern that is the most successful uh, fern species on the planet it's got a wide cosmopolitan distribution so many people listening to this will find it those dry fronds that you get in the in the winter and into the spring before the new growth comes up uh, that you can collect easily and is often up and away from the ground and relatively dry particularly if it's got a breeze going through it or some sunshine on it um, you can collect a lot of it quite quickly and that can be like your second level of material so you can drop the spark into the fluffy seed heads and then that will flame it will burn for a second or two but the flames of that will then light the bracken and away you go you've got your fire whereas trying to spark directly onto bracken is pretty tricky so knowing these intermediate um, materials is useful so downy fluffy seed heads whether it's from uh, tifa whether it's from thistles whether it's from some of the poplars and various other species that have uh, fluff um, in their seeds and that help disperse the seeds could be another one to look out for there are others as well some of which require some processing but they're two really good broad categories that will help you and some specific species there that are widespread in themselves and that you will find on your 
travels and good to have in your firelighting tool box um, an area of knowledge in addition to just being 100% reliant on birch bark. So I hope that helps Theo and I also hope it helps other people who are listening to this. Check out those links in the show notes as well. Go to paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 39 and you can check out those additional resources to augment what I've just explained to you. Good question. Nice to end on a practical bushcraft note as well. There's a good range of questions there. Um, Some on equipment, some more philosophical, ethical questions, as well as some really practical questions as well. So nice spread there. Happy to answer this type of question. And um, please leave some more. You know where to go. paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash ask dash paul dash Kirtley. That will take you to the page where you can leave me a voicemail like the ones that people left here and ask me a question and I will look forward to answering more good questions in the future. But I hope you enjoyed this question and answer session as part of the Paul Kirtley podcast series. It's something that I'll be doing periodically once I have an accumulation of good and relatively novel questions to answer. Don't forget to double check back with the Ask Paul Kirtley series. There's 80 question and answer sessions there available both as podcasts and as videos and if you did like this and you want to leave me a comment please go to paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 39 please make sure you are subscribed to the paul kirtley podcast on your favorite podcast platform so whether that's itunes or stitcher or player fm or any of the others please subscribe on the one that you use i am still trying to get this onto spotify and if there are any other platforms that you wish to listen to the paul kirtley podcast on please let me know let me know if you liked this and also please share with your friends if you did like it. The links are all there on my blog and the sharing buttons, etc. are there too. So really appreciate your listening, appreciate your support. I will be back to an interview format for the next podcast. It's a really good one. Please look out for Paul Kirtley podcast episode 40 which will be with you before too long, be on my blog. It will be in your feed. So make sure you're subscribed and I will look forward to speaking to you on podcast episode 40. Thanks for listening and take care. Cheers. Cheers.